Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Foster, and today I'm joined by Georgie Collinson, who is an anxiety mindset coach, gut health expert, nutritionist and naturopath. After years of struggling with her own anxiety in her early 20s and finding no relief from conventional methods, George Lee finally discovered a lasting breakthrough with a holistic combined approach. And she developed this into the Anxiety Reset Method, which is a system that considers anxiety from the thoughts you think, the food you eat, the state of your gut health, your hormones and lifestyle. Originally from Melbourne, Australia, Georgie operates completely online and participates in many global online events and works with clients around the world. Now, in this episode, Georgie actually breaks down a lot of her concepts in terms of her anxiety reset method and how she takes a truly holistic approach. We go through a wide ranging topics from gut health to balancing hormones to the thoughts that you think to food intolerances and much more. And I think you'll find it really, really valuable because she actually shows the interplay between the physiological impact of anxiety and also how what we eat and how we behave impacts our neurotransmitters and then also the effects of the thoughts that we think. Sometimes we do go a little bit into women's health on this naturally because we discuss hormones. But I think that um, for those of you guys that are listening, I think you'll find it useful. Or at least if you have a significant other that you want to share this with, they'll also find um, some useful gems in there. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Georgie. So Georgie, it's so great to have you on the show. I'm really, really excited to interview you today because I have a ton of questions. Um, you're an absolute expert in terms of optimizing people's physiological health to really support their mental health and cognition. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Angela. It's a pleasure to be here. So can we start by just getting a little bit of background? Like, How did you get into helping people manage their anxiety and becoming an anxiety reset coach? Well, I think it's a similar story with so many people. I experienced it myself. And then when I got to a place where I could, I moved through it, I found tools that massively helped me. I wanted to share that with people and fast track them through that pain that I went through because it took me years and I love being able to take people through that in a much faster process so that they don't have to go to all the different healers and, you know, study a, a four-year degree in naturopathy and nutrition to actually get to the point where uh, they can, you know, be managing their anxiety really well. Amazing. So um, in terms of, you said, you mentioned that you did a four-year degree studying it all. Now, there's a, I know there's lots of different components to this. The gut has a huge impact. Um, but you said earlier when we were chatting that basically what you help people to do is to build their resilience so that they can find the practices that are needed to manage anxiety, like meditation um, and any kind of thought work and journaling they need to do that much easier. So a good place to start seems to be the gut. Um, first of all, we know that like around, I think, 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. What have you found um, in terms of gut health are the biggest 
kind of movers for people that help to optimize the health of their gut and manage that anxiety. Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say there is that with the reason I work sort of holistically with people is because I went through this confusing journey of wanting to just focus on one thing and thinking that there were just going to be all the answers in, if I just heal my gut, then then my anxiety will go away and life will be perfect. Or if I just, you know, get the perfect diet or um, whatever it may be. But the, the reality is all of these components work beautifully together. So, you know, if you still, if you might get the gut perfect, but if you're, or the diet perfect, but if you're still telling yourself thought, horrible thoughts and, and, you know, that inner critic is really loud, then you're still not, not really getting the whole picture there. But in terms of gut health, it's one of those beautiful ways that I love how tangible this is for something we can do to work on our anxiety because sometimes it just feels like you're just stuck that way and you're never going to change, like you're just an anxious person and that's who you are. That's definitely not true. Um, But with gut health, I think some of the best places to start would be to firstly be aware what what's happening with your digestive system so many people are so good at well we we kind of ignore it we don't talk about it because it's you know we don't want to talk about our habits of the toilet right it's not Mm. polite um and i think there's a lot of there can be some shame around it or whatever it might be um so i'd ask you to really think about are you actually having a bowel motion every day if you are not that's something that needs to be addressed. There's a, there's something not functioning as well as it could there. So, um, this sort of mild constipation or sometimes for some people it can be, they don't go for three days or, or maybe you go, maybe you have a motion, uh, four times a day, you know, these things need to be looked at and they're a sign that, that there's something going on with your digestion that could be addressed. Um, also noticing, do you get bloating? Do you get, uh, pain in your when you when you're digesting food is there discomfort is there reflux all of these little signs and symptoms can tell us that something's going on and it and it often means different areas of the gut or different aspects of the gut are not working as well as they could now it's a bit chicken or the egg in terms of the anxiety feeding into what your digestion's doing because if you're anxious you are so much more likely to be um, experiencing digestive sy- symptoms because it's going to, you know, send signals to your digestive system. You'll you can interrupt um, the the motion of the the movement through through the the digestive tract. So this is where for some people it's like everything spasms and we get diarrhea or really loose stools, and for other people with anxiety everything just closes up, shuts down and there's no blood flow or not enough blood flow to that area because we're predominantly in that sympathetic fight or flight mode of the nervous system. We're not getting into that rest and digest mode where the the blood is, is predominantly around our abdomen and our digestive system. So noticing these things is like the first thing to kind of uh, start with the gut health. The next thing would be looking at, um, you know, how have you damaged your gut or what's the, what's the potential damage to your, to your digestive tract? So how many courses of uh, antibiotics, certain medications have you taken? We know that the um, birth control pill, for example, um, does have an impact on the gut microbiome. 
Uh, it's it's not I quite commonly see you know bloating in women who have been on the on the pill for a long time, um, and we go off the pill, we rebalance things, and and things can can resettle, which is really great to see. Uh, alcohol, binge drinking heavy drinking, poor diet, all of that is going to take its toll on your gut health. That's not to say you can never, you know, have a fun night and, and you know, overdo it a little bit. Like your gut can bounce back from that um, sometimes, depending on what you're doing most of the time. You know, we've got to have a level of consistency of, of habits looking after ourselves. So if you're really pushing it in that sense, then your gut's not going to take it after a while. It's going to start to, um, you're going to start to experience symptoms, especially as you think of alcohol. When we use, when we have a wound and you've cut yourself, we disinfect our wounds with alcohol because we want to kill the bacteria. We have beneficial bacteria in our gut. So if we're filling ourselves with tons of alcohol, mm-hmm. pouring that through our digestive system, it's antibacterial. It's killing your gut microbiome. And once we've killed off those beneficial bacteria, much harder to recover them, much harder to get them to flourish back the way that they were. So you're always better off to, um, you know, try and minimize that damage where possible. And with something like antibiotics, sometimes we have to take them and that's okay. But you can also take antibiotics in a way that you are minimizing the, the damage and the loss of that, of that good bacteria as well. So how have you damaged your gut is another thing to think about. And where could you potentially um, reduce some of those behaviours? Pain medication, like especially non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, are a big factor in causing some inflammation at the gut lining as well. So if you're every month taking for a week, um, you know, painkillers to manage period pain, for example, there's definitely something else going on with your hormones because of that. But can we find an alternative there? Can we find some other way to manage that? Um, I know in the UK, you know, you can access CBD oil and that can be an amazing pain reliever that doesn't have the same effect on the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, And is that because it's making those um, pain relievers in terms of things like um, ibuprofen, for example, is that going to make the gut more permeable? Is that what it's causing in problems or inflammation in the gut lining? What would be specifically what are you referring to there in terms of disrupting the gut? So something like ibuprofen, it's actually damaging the gut lining. It's very harsh on the gut. So it will, will cause those, those cells that line the gut wall to become very, very mildly inflamed. So it's, it's something that's, it's microscopic. We can't just see this on, you know, with the naked eye. Um, but at that cellular level, there is some inflammation happening. And when those cells become inflamed, they start to swell up and separate and we get damage to the junctions that um, hold the cells together. When that happens, a whole myriad of stuff can happen to our system. But to keep it linked to anxiety, um, essentially we have these holes forming in the gut lining that mean that the cells, they're normally nice and tightly close together. So they can regulate what goes through them and what stays out. But when there's holes there, that regulation of what comes into the bloodstream and what stays out is lost to some degree. And so we get all the, all of this other stuff getting into our bloodstream. Um, it could be say undigested proteins. Our immune system sees those undigested proteins and it thinks it's a foreign invader. It thinks it's a virus. It thinks it's a bacteria. Um, and starts to attack. And so we get inflammation for happening at that, um, 
at that level in our bloodstream. We know that if we have a leaky gut or these holes in the gut lining, we also have a a leaky blood-brain barrier. So the the two are correlated and that inflammation in our bloodstream is going to end up um, reflecting in a, a mild level of inflammation in the brain as well. When the brain is inflamed, it's much harder to regulate those chemicals such as um, serotonin. We end up making um, out of tryptophan, which is the the amino acid precursor to serotonin, we end up making more of this other substance called kynurenin when we're in that, when there's more of an inflammatory environment in the brain. So less serotonin is produced. Um, We get interruptions to our cell signaling And this just creates an environment where we're more prone to anxiety. So if we can start to heal that gut lining, we can reduce that inflammation in the bloodstream, we can reduce any inflammation around the brain as well, and we can create a much better environment for the brain to function at its best so that we are able to uh, have that cognition that we want. We can actually focus. We can concentrate. The thoughts aren't just buzzing around in our brain. Mm. That's an inflamed brain. You You can almost feel that sense can't you so this is when people would be experiencing that kind of scattered thinking and they can't quite Mm. concentrate they've got lots of thoughts going on almost like monkey mind um and they're finding it hard i mean it's very difficult isn't it to kind of access deep work when you're in that state or even really any creative thinking Um, exactly i'm really curious because when you mentioned there about the um, permeability of the gut lining you know that some people have very extreme views on this and i'm just curious what yours is so In terms of gluten, you know, we know that obviously if you have celiac disease, you can't have any gluten. And then there's, are you gluten intolerant or are we all just tolerating it and actually can't digest it very well? I know that if you look at like books like um, Grain Brain, for example, and David Palmer's work, it's kind of very anti-gluten in terms of what effect that has on the brain. What have you found in your experience um, with gluten? Well, I was, well, I'll start by saying when I was studying, it was very much, we go gluten-free and that's the way we should be. But as experience has, has developed, and as I said before, you know, I went through this experience of trying to find the perfect diet and thinking my life would, would all fall into place. My mental health would be great, but being gluten-free was not was not great for me because uh, being completely gluten-free by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll add, um, because I didn't have the flexibility in my diet. I was anxious about eating out. I was anxious when my, uh, friends, um, cooked me a meal and I, and I w- didn't want to eat it cause I didn't want to eat the gluten or I didn't know what was in it, you know? So the fact that my body can tolerate some gluten without, I'm not gluten sensitive. I don't have a massive reaction to it. I'm not celiac. I have, I allow that flexibility in my diet because it keeps me balanced and, and feeling kind of, you know, easy about food as opposed to having all these rules. Um, so that's my personal view. And that's where, what I, what I sort of talk to my clients about. So we talk about, are you, are you actually celiac? Are you actually gluten sensitive? Because that is a real thing and Mm -hmm. that does have an impact. But if you're actually just following gluten free because you're trying to be as healthy as possible and you heard that that's a good thing to do, do you actually need to be gluten free? I think certainly having less gluten in our diets can be a great thing because the Western diet is full of way too much gluten and it's the it's the way that it's been processed and farmed that um, has has altered gluten uh, nowadays that has made it 
much more inflammatory to our digestive system. Um, But interestingly, the guy who did all the research on gluten and what it does to our gut lining, um, his name's Alessandro Fasano, and he eats gluten. So he did the the research (laughs) to find out that uh, when we eat gluten, it essentially attacks some of those tight junctions between the cells and causes some of those um, those gaps to form. But yeah, he he eats some gluten because it's not that gluten's the enemy. Our gut can actually tolerate a, a, a low level of that kind of stress if we're doing lots of other really good things for ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So if our diet's pretty good, we're not drinking and binge drinking all the time. You know, we're we're managing our stress. We're getting enough sleep. Then. Your, your body can tolerate some wear and tear from life, you know? Yeah, and as you say, I mean, life's about living as well, isn't it? So it's about having that fun. If you're so paranoid that you can't, suddenly you can't go out with friends because now you're completely gluten-free, you can only drink kombucha maybe because you won't have any alcohol but then you realize you've got some kind of histamine intolerance then you can't have that you can actually end up making yourself anxious can't you by restricting you can become I think isn't it called orthorexia where you're actually so obsessed with getting everything on point that now you've got no um freedom but yeah it's interesting what you said that the he actually eats it um so in terms of um Looking then at one one thing I have actually why I was still on gluten, because this is a big question mark in my mind and I've been researching is you can look as well. I find that some people do better on whole grain sources. Now, if you look at, for example, in the UK, we have a great company called Dutch Organics, which I love. And it's very kind of pure, I suppose, in terms of it doesn't have things added. So if you went to buy a pita bread and it was a Dutch organic whole grain pita bread, it pretty much has nothing in it other than the whole grain wheat some water, and maybe um, I think there's one other ingredient. But then if you take something like a wrap, these have all these names that I don't even recognize, and they seem to be some sort of fatty esters. There's lots of, what are those? Because one thing that has always concerned me is the inflammation that's caused by damaged fats in our bodies. And obviously Mm -hmm. to make that bread roll, you know, there's a difference between saying having something like, a whole grain organic pita bread or um, sourdough, which is great because it's got a sourdough starter and maybe good for the bread. What is it that we should be aware of as well? Because it's down to the processing, as you say, of that food as well, isn't it? It's not just the farming, it's the extra processing that it goes through that then damages our gut lining. Yeah, absolutely. So look, when it comes to reading an ingredients list, look at how how few um, ingredients as many, what am I trying to say? The minimal number of ingredients as possible is, is ideal and making sure that each of those things is something that you generally understand what it is. You know, when it says preservative 312, like you want to know what is that? (laughs) We don't know. Mm -hmm. So there's a, and there's a reason that that's, um, that's in the food. So you can understand, okay, well, given certain manufacturing, I I actually used to have a food business. So I understand there are certain rules around what needs to be included in foods for shelf life and stability and and killing off bacteria and things like that. So citric acid, for example, is, is comes from lemon juice. And so I don't mind seeing that on a label because it's a preservative, but it's a, it's one of the most natural ones. Um, Vitamin E is another really great one as well. So there's a few out there, but, but if it's, yeah, if it's these really complex chemical sounding words like I'd be I'd be looking out for that and trying to avoid it when it comes to consuming gluten one of the best ways that we can have it is sourdough bread Mm. because there's been a fermentation process that has I hope that 
uh, it's just started raining really loudly where I am. So hopefully <laughs> it doesn't come through too much in the background, but um, it's actually quite relaxing. Uh, so sourdough, because there's been a fermentation process uh, through the dough, it's actually um, reduced the amount of gluten that's in, in the bread. Um, but it's also, I think, one of the most delicious ways to have gluten. Mm, I do. Oh, I really I love sourdough. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you, yeah, it's a shame if you can't have sourdough, right? Um, So then the other thing, like, so this kind of comes into it as well. And I know, I feel like we're breaking these down a little bit because I know you prefer to look holistically, but I just want people to understand all the areas that you look at that, that really make us up is hormones. This is a big one, particularly for women. We do have these fluctuating hormones. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, maybe you're taking pain relief once a month um, as part of your kind of monthly menstrual cycle. If you're getting pain, um, our hormones are fluctuating all the time. And obviously this is um, quite a new area of research that's going on at the moment in terms of looking at how can we balance what we do against our hormonal cycle in terms of when we exercise, how kind of creative we are. Um, what are the things that we should look out for, both men and women, um, in terms of balancing our hormones so that we are less anxious and calmer and can ha- access that flow state more easily? Mm. So, look, I mean, it's it's easier for me to kind of talk about this in the context of women just because of the way that our, our menstrual cycles flow. So I'll start with women in the sense of if you are, if you are experiencing um, uh, PMS, so anxiety generally is that that's the most common ex- uh, symptom we get before our periods, or um, it could be, it could be a mood change. It could be you, that you feel really flat before your period, um, sore breasts, all of that. This is something that is generally accepted in society as normal. Like, oh, she's just due for a period. So, you know, just like that's what happens to women. But the reality is it's happening because there's something going on with your hormones and it doesn't have to be as dramatic as it can, can be for some women. So we... While in some cases we don't completely, you know, flatline ourselves, you you may always be a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more emotional before your period. You notice your period's coming. But if it's to the point where it's really disrupting your life, and and for some women this is the entire luteal phase, it's not just a a day or two before their period they feel this way, it's two weeks, you know, and that's that's too much that we should be feeling that way. So um, typically this is happening because there's a deficiency of progesterone. There can be other other factors around it as well, but that's the most common one. And the reason we see this progesterone deficiency is predominantly from stress because our body, when we make, we make progesterone from a chemical called uh, a, a hormone precursor called pregnenolone and pregnenolone also converts into cortisol our stress hormone. So if our body is in need of more cortisol because of the demands placed upon our body, we skip past progesterone and we go straight to cortisol. We need all of our resources to make cortisol and there's not a lot left over for the progesterone. I, th- I like to think of it this, this another way that if our body is in survival mode and we're in that emergency, we've got to get through this we need all our resources to help our body adapt. So we need to make more of our cortisol, our stress hormone to cope with the stress. Reproduction goes out the window. We don't need to be making babies right now. We need to just survive. Mm. So this is, stress is a huge driver of our hormone imbalances. And it's one of the, 
um, trickier ones to get a consistent result with because, you know, life stuff happens sometimes, but we can certainly get better at managing our stress and, and that kind of thing. Um, other ways and that naturally we can... those are going those are going off anyway, aren't they? As women get into kind of perimenopause, both estrogen and progesterone are beginning to drop. So we're kind of fighting a bit of a not a losing battle, but we have to be even more mindful of of the stress that we're putting ourselves under at that point. Absolutely, and there's this crazy thing where our whole um, menstrual years, our menstruating years, we are hopefully, I mean, not everyone gets this uh, estrogen dominance, but many women experience uh, high levels of estrogen, which is why we get heavy periods, fibroids, um, period pain. And it's very common. It often correlates with a woman who is also experiencing constipation quite frequently. Her bowels aren't moving frequently enough or something going on with the liver, which might be linked to um, lots of medications being used or um, lots of drinking alcohol, for example. So that can all cause estrogen dominance, um, which is where we have this filtration system of our liver and our gut that needs to be moving to clear that estrogen effectively. If there's a blockage somewhere in that system, we get a buildup of estrogen and that's where all this common period pain comes from typically, um, if it's not endometriosis as well, but it can be a factor in, in that and, and PCOS as well. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of where was, what was I saying? We're saying about it can be like the liver as well because it was actually on that point on terms of estrogen. Um, what I've what I've heard as well is that if you um, if you're not clearing estrogen effectively, it can get repackaged into a more dangerous form if the liver isn't flushing it out effectively. Um, and that kind of depends on how many things the liver's got to process, doesn't it? But you were explaining there in terms of estrogen dominance can quite often happen um, and that aggravates things like pain and some of the other symptoms. Exactly. And I've just remembered as well. So in our menstruating years, we are trying to manage that estrogen and, and, and get to a place where it's well balanced so that we don't experience these symptoms. Then comes perimenopause and menopause and suddenly we need more estrogen and we're trying to encourage our estrogen production. So this is where um, we're actually looking at ways that we can, yeah, support that, support that life stage. You know, I, I really, I get frustrated sometimes when menopause is classified almost like a condition, like something that we need to treat. And the reality is it's a normal natural life process that we need to support, but it's not something that needs definitely needs medication or, or that kind of thing. You know, our body's yeah, not so just on that, because perimenopause is something that I guess has gathered more, um, more, not, not, um, more awareness would be the way I say more awareness over recent years. Whereas before it was kind of like we had menstruating women and then we have menopausal women. And now many more people are beginning to understand actually there's this phase that leads up. You don't just suddenly trip into, into menopause. So when we're looking at perimenopause, my understanding is that this can actually last a good kind of five years or more um, that women are going through this. What distinguishes between, I know that some women will experience shorter cycles. Sometimes actually the cycles get longer, they get more disrupted. So they're just having less infrequent periods, but how can, how can a listener, a female listener, understand that she's now moving into perimenopause and that she might need to be becoming aware of things like these drop-in hormones? 
Well, typically perimenopause wouldn't occur any sooner than your 40s. So that would be the earliest it would start to occur. Um, but m- for most women, I mean, the average age in, in Australia for, for menopause itself to be categorized is about 51. So you know that if you're in that age bracket somewhere there um, and you're noticing that your periods are more irregular, you're noticing that some days you just get a bit of spotting and then some days you're not getting, um, you, you know, some some cycles you, you don't get a period at all or some cycles you're noticing that you are experiencing more anxiety, more hot flushes as well. Um, this is this is classic of perimenopause and it can also feel like an in less of a less of an ability to kind of um, regulate your emotions like feeling really uh, a sense of either being irritable feeling um, quite sensitive so all of these things can can be a part of that that perimenopausal process and again it's just something to support in your body and know that that's happening um, and supporting your estrogen levels not dr- like if you're drinking quite a bit of alcohol that's something that's not going to be helping the situation if you're drinking quite a lot of caffeine it's not something that's going to be helping the situation either so making sure that your bowels are moving regularly looking after your gut health looking after um, and supporting gently supporting your estrogen production you can do that by um, consuming more of our uh, estrogen regulating foods like so legumes like chickpeas um, and lentils can be uh, one source of of these um, estrogenic like compounds in our body that help to regulate soy is another one i'd recommend organic soy not not the really um processed stuff and uh, these are just some ways that we can we can yeah support that transition so these are using kind of almost phytoestrogens to boost estrogen because it's actually dropping. And the effect of alcohol on that, obviously that has a big impact. We talked about on gut lining. How is alcohol affecting? Because I know alcohol obviously affects the liver and then is affecting the detoxification pathways in the body. But if estrogen, if they're in perimenopause and estrogen's dropping a bit, what will be the impact of alcohol there? Well, it's hard to pinpoint an exact um, way that alcohol is having an impact because it does so many different things. Um, but it's more that research has shown that a correlation between more severe symptoms for those who, who are more frequently consuming alcohol. So yes, there's, there's an impact on the liver. Yes. There's an impact on the gut lining on levels of inflammation in that sense. And, and that flow on effect there as well. Interesting. Thank you. And, um, The other area I wanted to talk to you about is sometimes people can be anxious because they've got some vitamin and mineral deficiencies that they're not aware of. Um, What commonly do you see in that sense? So probably, I mean, obviously magnesium. I can't not talk about magnesium here. Um, it's, it's so, so common because we just don't get, in fact, I more commonly see the minerals themselves as a, as a, as a, group being neglected because uh, we just don't get enough in our soil that then doesn't get into our vegetables and our produce, you know? So if we don't have it in our soil, um, it's not getting into our food. It's not getting into our bodies in adequate levels that, that we need, especially with the way that farming is often um, done in, in terms of these large scale farms where the soil turnover means that the soil is quite depleted often in terms of, um, minerals. So magnesium is a huge one. If your body is under stress, 
you will actually excrete and use up more of your magnesium stores. So if you're under a lot of, if you're feeling a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of pressure, you, you put, put a lot of demands on your system, you can actually use up your magnesium faster. So your body actually has a greater need for magnesium in those times. If you're drinking quite a bit of caffeine too, um, there's been studies to show that you end up, uh, through your urine, excreting more magnesium as well, which is an interesting one. Mm. Um, so that's something that um, I, I would always look out for people. The other one is zinc. So zinc is a, a tricky one because the best, the best source of zinc in nature is oysters. And how, how often do you eat oysters, Angela? <laughs> Never. <laughs> exactly. But funnily enough, actually, I wasn't zinc deficient when I had a look. So I guess maybe you can get a little bit, can you, from things like nuts? Maybe I pick it up. Yes. Uh, yes. But yeah, I never eat oysters. You're right. So oysters are one of our richest sources. But of course, we can get it from nuts and seeds. We can get it from meat. We can get it from, um, you know, leafy greens as well, uh, chocolate so or cacao. So uh, chocolate, I must be getting a lot from there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's where all my zinc is coming from but, well this is the beautiful thing about chocolate it gives, us, um, it gives us magnesium zinc iron like there's so many amazing minerals that we can get from from that so i'm i'm all for a little bit of that being in the diet but um yeah so zinc is is one that that we often need to be aware of especially for those who are not eating oysters but also not eating much meat like and, and not really aware aware of that um, because it's just so important for this is this is one of the cofactors we require in the recipe for making gamma aminobutyric acid, which is also called GABA in our brain. GABA is our calming neurotransmitter. It calms down the brain, and we can't get enough of that with anxiety. So supporting that that biochemical pathway, helping the body to have plenty of zinc so it can make that GABA is really really important. Um, you the other one actually I, prescribe people GABA or, I mean, obviously it's always better to support the pathway that does it, but do you ever, are there supplements here that you say to people actually you could supplement with this, even if it's just for a short period while you're correcting things? I do. I find GABA can be a little tricky. I get some people love it and get a really great response. I have uh, about 10% of people who get the opposite response and find it very stimulating, aggravating, don't feel like themselves taking it. Um, and so it's one that I'm, I'm kind of cautious of. I'm also a little skeptical of how, when we are ingesting it, the GABA, if for it to get across our gut lining, all those components that make it up have to be deconstructed anyway to go, to be absorbed into our bloodstream. So I'm not as convinced how much of that ends up getting to our brain. So I prefer the approach of, of going for the nutritionals that, that make up GABA. So B6 is another one um, and zinc is really important and magnesium. The other deficiency I see a lot that, that is important for anxiety is iron and so common in women that we're not getting enough iron. Um, and the, one of the reasons why it impacts anxiety is that if we are iron deficient, this is how our, our body makes hemoglobin and carries oxygen around our bodies. Now, if we don't have enough oxygen being carried to our brain, our brain firstly isn't going to function as well. We're going to feel a bit foggy-headed. We're going to feel a bit uh, confused. We're not going to have that same clarity that we want. But also we're in a state where we're actually more 
um, prone to panic attacks. So when we are having a panic attack, there's high level of carbon dioxide in the brain. And so if this process isn't, um, if, if our carbon dioxide isn't being cleared adequately, we're not getting enough oxygen getting to the brain, then um, this can be a reason for, for some women why, why they're always feeling on that edge or that brink of a, a panic attack. So I always- That's very like, interesting because actually I recently had, uh, iron infusion because my iron had dropped. Um, but this is this is interesting because here, certainly in the UK, unless you move into, if you look at kind of the four stages of iron deficiency, people aren't, in the initial stages, they're obviously more often than not, they're not really getting symptoms. But when their ferritin starts to drop really low, I find, you know, I was suffering with a lot of brain fog. Concentration was hard. Motivation, I was kind of like, why can't I just, and I think a really common thing is that then you think, I've just, I've got to motivate myself more. I've got to do, you know, go on a 10K run or do a hit work or something to stimulate that because you're feeling so depleted. And I think I had not tripped into um, anemia, but that's obviously stage four. That's harder then to correct. But often, certainly here on the National Health Service, they wouldn't look at correcting it. They might give you some supplements if your ferritin was low. But my understanding is that women's ferritin levels need to be kind of 80 to 100. Well, mine had dropped down to 19. So at that point, you may not be anemic, but you're pretty symptomatic. I noticed that my hair would not grow past a certain length, certainly around the front. Um, And just overall energy levels were much lower. I wasn't getting things like dizziness. Um, So I think that's hard, isn't it, for women? Because it's often not going to be treated until it gets so bad. Exactly. So anything below 50, I would treat with a supplement or make sure, okay, let's, how much, you know, how often are you consuming um, red meat? Like, Mm -hmm. because so many women, we're trying to do the the thing that's healthy for our hearts and not have too much red meat. But I think that message can get confused sometimes where we think meat is so bad for us. And it's, that's just not the, the case when your overall diet and lifestyle is full of vegetables, you know, you're managing stress, you're looking after yourself, meat can be incredibly healthy. And there's this, there's this really um, big push for, for meat being unhealthy. I think it's great to, to not consume too much, but um, yeah, having a little bit in your diet can make it just so much easier because then you don't have to take a supplement, but sometimes we do need to just, or, or for whatever reason, um, meat is not consumed and that's fine. Uh, that this is where we just need to be supplementing. And yes, it, it can have an impact before those, before it really shows up on the blood test, um, in terms of the, the changed in the right, in the red blood cells. Um, so it's, it's just something that, um, it's important to keep on top of for sure. And it's difficult, isn't it, to tolerate? Um, is it like is it iron by bisglycinate that you find is a bit easier for people to tolerate on the stomach if they're going to yes. take it? Yeah, it's yeah. less constipating. I, with any mineral, I always recommend a, an amino acid chelate, so the bisglycinate form. They're the best mm. because they're, they're, it's basically sandwiching the mineral in between two amino acids, and your gut prefers to take up amino acids. It doesn't want to take up lots of, of minerals because it's kind of trying to regulate the minerals in your body. It doesn't want to, it's, our bodies are kind of like not wanting to overload us with iron, for example, but we need this stuff. So we kind of hide it in a bit of a Trojan horse of two amino acids, and then it, it gets taken up into our bloodstream much more efficiently. Much easier. And um, we haven't talked about dairy because that's another big one. So I know you were a bit more moderate in your approach to gluten. What about dairy? Because obviously some people, many people are lactose intolerant and that makes it very, very difficult to digest milk. 
But putting that aside, there is a bit of a minefield. There seems to be that some people say dairy is actually protective against things like cancer. And then there's other extreme theories that this was made for baby cows. It's full of growth hormones and you really must stay clear of dairy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is the thing. Those extreme views on all of these foods, they sell books. They sell, they sell. We all want the extreme. We want to know, oh God, this is terrible. I'm so much more neutral and balanced in my approach because I don't want to fear monger people around food. It's just not necessary most of the time. And so with dairy, yes, there's there's anti-cancer research. There's, there's research that shows dairy um, can be anti-inflammatory, which is exactly opposite to the perhaps what's become a mainstream message in, in wellness culture that dairy is evil. And so for, from my perspective, look, I'm not a big, I'm not a milk drinker. I don't, for cow's milk, it just has never been something I enjoy. I I didn't grow up on it really. Um, I tend to, if I'm having a, a, a chai or something, I will have it with, um, with organic soy milk or I'll have it with almond milk. Um, I know oat milk's really big in the UK. That's only just starting to take off here. <laughs> We're still into our, our almond milk. But um, so I, it's something I will I would moderate. You know, too much of anything is not great. If you are experiencing symptoms because you have dairy, you suddenly feel really bloated and uncomfortable. Your stomach is gr- in griping pain. Um, don't have dairy. That's not, mm. it's not agreeing with you. If you notice that it aggravates your eczema, um, don't have dairy. It's not good for you. If you have an autoimmune condition, see how your symptoms improve with a period of two to three months dairy free or two to three months gluten free as well. Um, because the, we, we do see some of these, um, compounds in those people influencing those conditions. But if you don't have one of those conditions, you're not one of those people and you don't feel terrible having dairy, then it's okay to be in your diet here and there. So I, I particularly really love um, kefir, mm. you know, and I find that yeah. it's full of probiotics. It's a, it's an ancient food and it's, it's really good for us. So um, if you can tolerate it, have it is my, my general rule. If you can have the flexibility, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. Um, now that's, that's, that's really helpful people because I think, you know, things like kefir as well and like um, probiotic rich yogurt, you know, you don't always have to opt for the coconut. It's really good for your healthy um, gut bacteria. Um, just to kind of finish there, we talked a little bit earlier, you just mentioned about um, stimulants like caffeine and they can deplete um, magnesium. Caffeine is kind of a big one. Some people say I can't tolerate any amount of caffeine and then you've got other people who are maybe using it to excess um, I think it's personally a brilliant, like it's probably the best nootropic you can take in terms of brain p- performance when you need to switch on. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts around caffeine and really like how careful we need to be with the quality of caffeine? You know, there's a lot in, um, online and on blogs at the moment, again, that gets people excited about, oh my God, if you're having coffee and it isn't organic and it isn't single origin, then you're taking in lots of mycotoxins and mold and things like that. What are your thoughts around caffeine? I love that you've asked me this and, and I feel like I, I love that this whole conversation has turned into a bit of like a, a busting through all of this. Yeah, all of this <laughs> bust through and, the myths. Yeah, and and I'm I'm really happy to bring a more balanced message to people. But so with caffeine, that's probably the one and I'm a little I will I will fully disclose I'm a little biased here because I'm not a huge coffee drinker. I've never been one. Um because 
if I have even a weak latte, I am jittery. My fingers will start jittering. I feel anxiety. I feel my chest tighten. I, adrenaline. It's just adrenaline for me. And it's not a good feeling and it's uncomfortable. And so it's something that I, I commonly see with if, if anyone is experiencing frequent anxiety, caffeine has to go at least for a period of time zero caffeine to see how your body responds. Now there's some people who think they're okay on it, but then it's also interrupting their sleep quality potentially. And they're not sleeping as heavily as they otherwise could. And so we're all different though. And there are genetic, genetic influences that that come into play here. My dad can have four, I think he has six shots of coffee a day. And it just like disturbs me greatly that he does that, but he copes with that and that's fine. Um, but I, there's no way I could do that. And, and people, some people can have a coffee before bed, you know, when people do that after dinner, I've just never understood those people. Mm. But so my, I think my, then my, it really is impacting their sleep, uh, even if they're not aware of it, because it has such a long half-life and even quarter life is pretty long. Yeah, exactly. So look, um, around coffee, I would say if you are having difficulty with your sleep and anxiety, See how your body functions for two weeks, four weeks without it, just to see, just to experiment with yourself and then reintroduce it and, and notice, okay, oh, hold on. That's really given me, I've been really anxious today, or I really didn't sleep well last night. And then you have that valuable information. If you've noticed it, it doesn't really impact you, then then great. You can have some coffee because there are some amazing benefits. There are great health benefits to consuming caffeine. Um, it can, you know, it obviously wakes you up. It helps you to concentrate, but, um, you know, if you're using it as well to give you energy, to get through, to push yourself more again, I would question, you know, why there's this huge pressure to push yourself so hard and how, how are you potentially trying to bypass a bit of rest and giving yourself a break and letting yourself um, Mm. enjoy life, not just all this this hard work that we push ourselves through. Because I think sometimes we can rely on coffee to help us become these superhumans and kind of do all this stuff that, um, yeah, maybe maybe our body's not designed to cope with, you know. So those are my thoughts around caffeine. I think if you can tolerate it, great. Um, I, I respect people who've told me that they've experienced a break up from it and they didn't really notice a difference because I'm like, great, okay, we can move on from there. But if if someone's, yeah, we're, we're coming to work on our anxiety and they've never experienced their body off it since they started drinking it, well, we need to look at that. Yeah, for sure. And um, in terms of we kind of dealt a lot there with the physical side of things, just looking now in terms of managing anxiety from more of a mental perspective. So we've got this whole kind of holistic approach. Um, Panic attacks are a difficult one because they can come on for people quite suddenly and they can feel completely overwhelming. Do you have any techniques of maybe even just anticipating that that is coming um, for people that experience these? Because I think many people are almost... I find people are embarrassed to admit that they do suffer. Anxiety has quite a stigma. It's less so now, which is great because I think people are talking about it, but it's always been, I think people have felt like, oh, it's, it's indicative that I can't cope. Whereas actually everybody suffers with anxiety at some points, just some people more than others. And panic attacks are particularly scary for people. 
I always find it interesting. I see these statistics sometimes that say things like one in four people will experience some anxiety at some point in their life. And I'm like, mm, pretty sure that's, that's <laughs> not. Everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> everyone. It, mm. Anxiety is a normal human emotion, right? And, and I think it, it can serve us in many ways. So one of the messages, one of the things that I, I talk about is that anxiety often has a message for us. Maybe it's trying to tell us that our hormones need some some work and we're not looking at that. Maybe it's trying to tell us that we actually are taking on too much or we need to look at the living situation we're in, our, our um, work environment, for example, that might not be right for us, you know, and causing a lot of anxiety. So it can actually be a really beautiful navigation system for our lives. And and if we welcome it in, in that sense, and we stop seeing it as this thing that shouldn't be there, it can actually become a really powerful tool that, that is like our internal compass that we can embrace. So when it comes to panic attacks, I firstly want to say anyone that's listening, that's experienced a panic attack, it literally feels like you're going to die in that moment. And so massive compassion to you with the advice I'm about to give, because I just want you to understand, to, to know that I, I understand how terrifying that experience can feel. It's, it's the most terror you can feel without, without actually dying, <laughs> but it feels like you are. Um, and the best thing you can do, and it takes practice, you're probably not going to get it the, the first time you try it, and it's going to feel uncomfortable and it's going to feel unnatural because all our instinct is fighting against it, trying to get rid of it. I don't want this to be here. Oh my gosh, I can feel a panic attack coming on. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel this way. Make it stop. Make it stop. I'm going to, I've got to try and stop this thing. And as we fight it, it gains momentum. It gains more energy and it gains more control over us. One of the best things you can do for a panic attack is to, and it's, it takes practice. So again, I just want to warn anyone listening, that is to actually allow the fear, the sensation of the anxiety to be there and let that be okay that it's there. And notice that what it is, is a sensation in your body, bringing your focus to how your body's feeling. It's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant, but at the end of the day, it's a sensation. It's an emotion you're feeling. And the best thing you can do is sit with it and know that when you bring your focus to it, and you sit with where you can feel it in your body. So predominantly you might feel it's all heart racing. And for some people, I get like a tingling numbness around the jaw. Some people feel um, a massive churning in the gut. Where is that physical sensation? You bring your awareness to it. You focus your attention on it. Like your, if you close your eyes, it's like you're shining this light of your awareness on that spot where you can feel it. And suddenly it loses its power. It's got nowhere to go. It loses its steam when you stop fighting it. And it feels, it's so unnatural. It goes against all our instincts to do that because we're, we're afraid. But you have so much power and control in that moment that you probably haven't tapped into before. So when it's actually welcome to be there, when it's actually okay that that, that sensation is coming up and I even ask people sometimes to see if you can make it bigger. 
See if you can actually increase that, like you're trying to expand that sensation and increase it. You can't. And it actually makes it diminish even more. So allowing that sensation to be there is one of the best ways you can actually cut a panic attack, stop it in its tracks and take back control. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, empowering place to be when you, when you learn how to do that. It, it takes some practice though. And, and the way we can practice is when anxiety comes up. So not quite a panic attack, but just feeling a lot of anxiety, just noticing that buzzing sensation in your chest or in your stomach, wherever it is and sitting with it and not going after just 10 seconds of that, spending two minutes, five minutes with it. That's all you need. It doesn't need to be so long, but it gradually releases. It's, it's an amazing tool. I love using that one with people. Wow, that's so powerful. <clears throat> so powerful and so interesting because it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Isn't it? A lot of people would be um, thinking that they need to, to do the opposite. They need to somehow induce some kind of relaxation response. But as you say, that's, um, that's fighting it. It's a little bit like, um, I think it's Kelly McGonigal that did lots of research. She's got a great TED talk about when you're feeling stressed and someone's going to go on and present, for example, on a stage and they're feeling anxiety, that the moment that they just decide to pivot and see that as excitement, because it's the exact same emotions and they embrace that, that stress suddenly turns into a force for good. And often the people that don't know, you know, they've, they've done things. I think they did some studies where they took a bunch of people and said, right, well, before you go on stage, you've got to now really try to calm yourself down and just tell yourself you're calm and focus on your breath and all these things. And then the other group, they were like, take those same emotions and understand that this is just completely natural. It's pure excitement. It's the same thing that your body does. And that group of people, their um, speeches were delivered so much better by the audience as in the way they were received. Sorry, they were so much more receptive. They were engaged better. Um, the, the content that they gave was that much more powerful than those that had basically tried to completely resist and shift and turn it into something that it isn't. And it's, as you say, the power goes away once you accept. Exactly. I love that so much, that concept as well, because it's just, it's so true. And I, I wish more people knew that this, this, this is within their control. I think another way that you can do it as well to trick your body into feeling excited or feeling embracing of the anxiety, if you can, if, especially if you're you know, working from home or wherever you are at the moment, we have a bit more flexibility with these things. You could literally put on a song that goes for three minutes and like one that you love that gets you moving and dance and like move that energy, you know, and express excitement. And suddenly you've, you've really flipped the whole experience into something positive and something that, um, yeah, is, is beneficial for you. Yeah, for sure. And what would you say for, we talked a bit about, you know, hormones and things and women in particular, I think are so under pressure at the moment. There's so many things going on, especially if they've got a family and, really that that period of kind of perimenopause they can be very anxiety anxious anyway during that period because they've got so much on it so coming at a point in their life where they're in their 40s they're raising children they're kind of at a peak time in terms of their work often and there's so many competing demands and then now they're getting the shift in hormones and it's all kind of just layering on top their own parents maybe are having health issues now because they're much older and it's just this I find for women in their sort of mid to late 40s and early 50s, there's just this melting pot of stuff coming in. What advice would you give to them to try and just manage all these competing demands? There's so many things, but 
what comes to mind first is understanding, and I see this way too often with so many mothers, you cannot serve from an empty cup. You cannot help people when you are completely depleted and you are number one. And when you give to yourself, you're giving to others by giving to yourself. When you take an hour to go get that massage once a week, if that's what you need, you're actually, that's not selfish. That's not taking away time from your kids or taking away time from your husband or your partner or your work commitments. Like you need that so that you can then show up and be there in your career, be there for your family. Otherwise, you've got nothing to give them. So we have to flip this priority around in our heads and actually be honest with yourself. What is it that you need? Do you just need a day, a week or an afternoon? Do you need a sacred Sunday where it's just you and you've got time to yourself? Like how can you have these boundaries in your life and communicate to your family members what you need? It can be hard with really young children, but when you have children that are old enough to understand, maybe there's there's a sacred time on a Sunday morning where mum doesn't get disturbed and dad takes care of the kids or, or someone else comes in and looks after the kids. We just need to, to look after ourselves. And it, it's so easy to fall into that trap of giving and giving to everyone. And we think that's good. That makes us a good person. But giving to yourself is the best because then you have an overflowing cup to give to others because Mm. you're full. And so it's not always so easy to to implement that. But but I would I would suggest, you know, having conversations with those people that can support you in your life about what you need. And and maybe you can do the same for them. You know, maybe you can um, support them in, in whatever way as well. But knowing that you're allowed to ask for support. You're allowed to ask for your needs to be met and you're allowed to set boundaries and have sacred time for yourself. Oh, that's very, very important. Thank you for that. I think, um, I think, yeah, people need to remind themselves just how much that's important. And as you say, you definitely can't give from an empty cup. Um, yeah. So just before we close, what can we tell us, Georgie, what does a day in your life look like? So how do you balance your day? What's your kind of... What's your morning and evening routine? What are your go-tos maybe on a weekly basis? What are kind of, kind of some of the habits that you can share? Because you obviously are very calm and measured in your approach and you seem like you've done a lot of internal work and also on your own physiology. Um, what, what does life look like for you? I love this question. No one's ever asked me this. So mm-hmm. I when I when I get up, I do try to delay checking my phone. I I always sleep with my phone on airplane mode, so it's not emitting a signal. So I'll try and leave it off that airplane mode, uh, sorry, like on airplane mode. So, so I'm not getting messages come through or notifications until I've actually gotten up. So I'll, I'll get up. I will get in a cold shower for 30 seconds or two. I I probably do straight off to bed. Is it straight out of bed? You go cold shower. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I turn the, I do, it's winter at the moment. So I do turn the heating up a little bit. I will admit that it's, it's not a completely freezing cold house that I'm in, but, um, I will, yeah, I'll have my cold shower. Um, and that it honestly, it sounds nuts. I know, but it just sets me up for, I've already done something uncomfortable today. And I just have this warrior mindset as I go into that cold shower and I'm just like, boom, we're doing this. Like I'm doing this. And it actually, it stimulates your vagus nerve. So it it makes you 
I, I always find that I get the giggles. I want to laugh when I'm in the cold um, and it doesn't last very long and soon enough it's over. And then So you go in I'm- fully cold, right, so that you get that reflex. You don't go in and gently kind of turn it down. It's just like full-on cold, walk in. Full cold. I um, Some people can have a hot shower first and then go into cold at the end, but I just want to get it over and done with. And to be honest, I can, you know, wash in that minute everything I need to. So I'm kind of like, I'm kind of, I'm satisfied with that. It does, it works for me. And then it's just over and it's done. And then I'll probably put on some music and um, it depends. I I might do my meditation first. I I love doing like a a Joe Dispenza style meditation in the morning. Oh, he's so good. And it's so good. It's magic. And to sit in those feelings of positive anticipation for my future every day. Mm. That's, that's what it is. And it just relaxes the nervous system on this deep level. Um, and then, so if I've done the meditation, then I'll put some music on that's generally uplifting, whatever I'm enjoying at the moment and, uh, and make my breakfast and I might dance around as well. Uh, it depends on the day. Some days I might also do a little at home workout or some yoga. Um, and I love going for a, a big walk every day as well. I'll, I'm a, I'm a late morning person, so I, I can enjoy a slow morning. So I'm, I'm lucky I can do that with the way that my work is. Um, and then I'll sit down and, and depends what clients I've got on that day. I'll get back to emails. I'll, record edit podcasts um that's sort of that's sort of what my day looks like and I'm I'm also I mean I'm conscious to get my my whole foods in but I'm not so crazy restrictive about my diet at all because I've been down that road as I've said so um I just enjoy food I enjoy the pleasures of food and I try to invite yeah pleasures into my day where I can so if the, if the sun's out I will, and it's the middle of the day. Now, most people will have a story about, well, I have to be working and I have to keep working and blah, blah, blah. But especially working from home at the moment, a lot of us have flexibility. And I've I've always had this flexibility because of um, how I work. So I'll spend 20 minutes. I'll lie out in the sun, even though it's winter. If if the sun, if it's not windy, it's actually can still be quite warm. So I'll get a bit of vitamin D. I'll, I'll get some sun on my skin because I think that's so important and supporting the immune system. We get benefits from actually exposing our skin to the sun beyond vitamin D supplements, mm. especially for our cardiovascular health. So um, in terms of the blood vessels dilating and nitric oxide production. So um, that's that's something I love to do as well. And shall I go to my bed bedtime let's ritual? Do, yeah, let's do your evening routine. How do you kind of, how do you bookend your day? That's when the journaling will happen. Okay. I'm much more of a journaler in the evening. I'm, I'll, um, I'm probably more flexible with the meditation in the evening. I'll do a little bit if I'm feeling like it before I journal. Um, I like to talk to my intuition I literally will have conversations with it, which I know sounds really freaky and weird, but I will um, meditate and connect to that calm centered place within myself. That's not my ego. It's not my mind. It's not fear talking. It's, it's the, it's the loving perspective, the wise perspective in me. So if I've got something I'm dealing with, I'll ask questions and I'll see what the response I get from that place is. So that's what I call connect, having a conversation with my intuition and I'll write it down the whole thing. Um, it's, it's a, it's something I've been doing for the last three years and I'm just, I love it. It's so, it guides so is that like life. a stream of consciousness or do you ask yourself questions? How does that journaling exercise work? 
So I will, yeah, I'll, I'll ask a question. So if I'm thinking about, say, um, at the moment I'm, I'm writing a book. So I would say, you know, is, is it, is it, is it a good move for me to write this book or do I have to, maybe I'm feeling guilty cause I didn't write the book today and I was meant to. So I'll say, is it really bad that I didn't write the book today? And they'll say, no, like <laughs> that loving wise part of me will say, mm. of course, you, you know, it's all happening in the right timing. You don't need to force that. Whereas the fear in me, the mind in me would tell me, that was really bad. You know, you had to like, why didn't you do that and beat me up for it? So connecting to that, that voice, um, is, yeah, I don't, I don't, it does feel different to me. There's a different tone. I, I, I feel like the, the mind and the fear is all up here and the calm, loving, wise voice, my intuition comes from my gut. I feel it come, I feel it rise up from within me. So when I'm, when I'm feeling for that answer, that's where it comes from. Um, and so that is, that's my evening routine. I'll often do some stretches as well on the floor and then, and then it's bedtime. Went down. Lovely. I love that. That's such a powerful way to start and end your day. And I love the way it's so intuitive as well. I think people can learn a lot from that. You know, don't beat yourself up that you didn't do something today, because as you say, everything has its own timing. Um, really beautiful. You've shared so much. I'm so grateful to you for coming on today, Georgie. Um, where can people find you and more about you so I can link to all of it in the show notes? Can you share? Thank you, Angela. Um, yeah, so probably the best place would be my Instagram at Georgie the Naturopath. Uh, I also have a website, georgiecollinson.com, and um, I have a, a 90 day anxiety program it's called reset your anxious mind in 90 days and that's where i guide people through this this whole um, process with looking at your physical health and your mental and your mind and the stories your mind is telling you and working on the both of them together so that it works so much more easily and in flow than just uh focusing on one aspect alone amazing thank you so much for sharing that i will link to all of that in the show notes and thanks for coming on today it's been so great to have you here thank you so much angela Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just wanted to make a few announcements here. Um, following a bonus episode that I released this week on Wednesday, I've had actually a little bit of feedback from people who said that they would love to have the episode sooner in the week. Um, usually I've been releasing podcast episodes on a Friday, but in response to that feedback, I'm actually going to switch the days now to a Tuesday, as many of you seem to be listening to it at the beginning of the week. So look out for next week's episode. It's going to be a bit early earlier on a Tuesday. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. That ensures that you won't miss out on any um, episodes or bonus episodes that I put out as they'll get downloaded as they become available. Um, Thanks so much for listening. And as always, head over to AngelaFosterPerformance.com where you'll find all the show notes for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.